Uh, I think to put it in the most simple terms, composers write the themes, arrangers utilize and modify the themes, and orchestrators bring the themes to life in the literal sense of creating the sheet music. Hey, hey, everybody, it's Matt Kenyon here, and you're listening to episode 26 of Composer Code, the podcast all about video game music and the fine folks that make it. I interview composers, and I try to tease out their workflows and proven patterns of success so that I can share that knowledge with all of you. My guest today is Eric Buckles, an extremely talented and experienced composer, orchestrator, and arranger. Eric's career has really taken him to some amazing places, such as backstage at Nintendo's E3 2011 performance of orchestral Zelda music, rubbing shoulders with uh, Shigeru Miyamoto, ever heard of him, Uh, touring with Evanescence, assisting Nintendo's National Symphony of the Goddesses concert tour, copying and orchestrating the score to Ori and the Will of the Wisps, the sequel to the beloved indie classic, and just recently starting his own production company, Limit Break Audio, which is super exciting. Unfortunately, that happened after our interview, so we don't touch on that. But what we do talk about is orchestration. Now, in preparation for our conversation, Eric graciously collected his best pieces of advice for composers looking to write for the orchestra. If you're a newcomer to the orchestra like myself, this is an amazing place to start. Eric also walks us through the process of how the Ori score went from raw MIDI data all the way to the music stands of professional players and all the work that goes into that process. So if you ever wonder what an orchestrator or a copyist or an arranger really does, this is the podcast for you. I'm fascinated by folks who have such a command over the orchestra and Eric certainly did not disappoint with his advice and his experience. So please enjoy this conversation with my guest, Eric Buckles. I was really active with video game music when I was in school. When I was 15 years old, I, I saw a video on, on, on the internet of some musicians performing Mario music, and I thought it was really cool to see like people playing video game music, and like I wanted to play video game music with my friends. And so we did that before and after our school band class. So naturally, I wanted to do something bigger and better than just playing before and after class. So I thought I'd try to arrange a bunch of Mario music for... Uh, my my junior high small group band to perform at the nice. spring concert, uh, and so that's a, that's what I did. Um, it it turned out pretty horrendously. All of the students had only been playing their instruments for maybe a year or two, mm-hmm. and you know you can imagine what what that sounded like for sure. Uh, yeah, I've I been actually, to, I've been to a middle and high school band concert. I I, I totally get the yeah. I, I, I totally get the feel there. Yeah, I, I focused mostly on like the orchestral percussion side of things. I did. A little bit of marching percussion, played some jazz drum set and stuff. Had a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> I miss performing. I don't perform so much anymore just because uh, it's you know, it's hard to live in an apartment or with other people to to have percussion instruments without annoying the neighbors or sure. whoever you're living with. So, And just having space to, to store all of them. Uh, but now I'm, I really want to get back into performing just because I, I, I just miss that sort of adrenaline rush. 
for sure. Yeah. So, so clearly, so you're 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 arranging for your high school band. You're clearly very passionate about game music. What is it about specifically about game music as as a kid that just captivated you? Was it a specific game? Is it a memory that you had playing a certain game that really kind of gripped you and and inspired you to to do more with game music? The thing I find the most particularly interesting about video game music uh, is the interactivity aspect of it, allowing the game and players' inputs to control and dictate what happens to the music provides a lot of unique challenges and opportunities uh, as a composer that you don't really get to have in any other form of medium. The game industry is fairly young when it comes to, uh, when, when it's compared to other industries like the film, uh, just concerts, music that's been performed alongside stage productions for centuries. It's pretty exciting to be among the first generations of uh, composers and orchestrators and people who are working in this uh, worldwide entertainment industry that's quickly becoming the, the biggest form of entertainment in the world. We know right now, uh, you know, and we'll get to this, that you've done some really incredible things with game music, you did Symphony of the Goddesses. So how do you go from arranging by your own words, uh, uh, you know, uh, difficult or what? The, I forget the word you said. You said it went pretty poorly when you tried to arrange your Mario music. So <laughs> h- how'd you go from that to doing something as awesome as touring from the Symphony of the Goddesses, like what was the what was the arc or what was the journey to get you there? Right, that that same year that I did the the Mario music for my my junior high band, I, w- I was in eighth grade. That same year is when I my friends showed me an online website called Zelda Reorchestrated. That was an online group of Zelda fans that was that was dedicated to reproducing music from Zelda using higher quality virtual instruments. I thought that was so cool, like that people could make realistic sounding orchestral music at home, like just right on their own computer. And uh, I really wanted to get involved. And so I started contributing to uh, Zelda Reorchestrated's weekly updates. Uh, Every week we'd put out a new track. Uh, We'd pick just one that we liked and we'd polish it up and we'd release it every week. It's a lot of work and it really helps you sort of refine your production and just sort of learn the ropes and how to transcribe music, use sample libraries, arrange, notate. So it was like a boot camp almost, and I learned a lot from that. But then during my senior year of high school, so after doing this for a few years, I was asked to be an assistant on the official Nintendo 25th Anniversary Symphony, which was uh, in 2011. Do you remember when they started their E3 presentation with the orchestra playing Zelda music? Yes. Yeah, so I was... I was actually working backstage for the Nintendo's rehearsal for that the presentation. That's as amazing. As well as like during the live presentation, I was helping out with the orchestra, uh, setting up for rehearsals, and uh, yeah, I was I was fresh out of high school, so I was I was just an assistant and unreal, dude! Uh, what an incredible experience. It, it was pretty crazy to be walking backstage and you know, coming the opposite way would be uh, Reggie, Miyamoto-san, Iwata-san, and the whole Nintendo crew. Later that year, uh, we recorded the bonus CD that shipped with Skyward Sword. Uh, That was my very first recording session that I ever attended. And I think that's what ultimately solidified, like, my existing interest in having a career in orchestral music for games. Watching the orchestra perform, like, in sight, read the music perfectly and fancy microphones and the the whole setup, it's it's pretty, pretty amazing to witness the whole process in action and... I think that's one of the things that keeps me coming back, uh, well, keeps me wanting to come back as a 
as a composer and orchestrator? I think if you're going to go, if you're going to have a first recording session, the Nintendo recording session where they're recording orchestral Zelda music is not a bad first one to attend, I imagine. Yeah, it was a dream come true for me at the time. Like, <laughs> So this is kind of a loaded question. And, you know, this is, orca- or- orchestral arrangement is very like this mysterious black box to me. You know, the people that I talk to on this podcast who get it just seem to really get it. And for me, I come from a folk singer, songwriter, pop background, and then I've transitioned into game music and I've mostly done, you know, the games I've been commissioned to do have been all chip tune and, and things of that sort. How do you learn orchestration? Like, how, how did you learn, just using you as an example, the, like mm. the principles of orchestration? So I guess I learned a lot of that just while I was in school. Like doing this all the reorchestrated stuff, just lots of trial and error, and even for arranging for my my classmates. Uh, after the Mario, after the year we did Mario, every year I would arrange uh, new video game music for for my band, school band to play, and so each year I would get like a little more experience writing for live players, and uh, I would get to see how they respond to my notation. You can learn a lot from just watching somebody try to play a piece of music that you put in front of them, mm-hmm. uh, wh- which sort of things to do or to not do. Transcribing Zelda music from from the game really helped. Getting into the nitty-gritty, kind of see, see what it's made out of. So one of the things I was most impressed with in, in Hero of Time is the Hyrule Field theme is like a faithful, almost like, to my ears, one-for-one representation of what the nintendo 64 instruments were trying to convey but actually conveyed with real instruments and it gave me chills the first time i heard it and still does just because it's the it's the it's what we all heard in our in our ears and in our minds as children playing the game but it was actually realized with these real instruments so did you transcribe the hyrule field theme and and meticulously put all the instruments where sort of the the original uh, composition intended it's it's a one for one transcription of the version that appears on the soundtrack with a little you know, an intro and an outro and stuff i didn't really want to change too much of it because i wanted it to be one of the more conservative arrangements on the album there's some that are far more creatively arranged but i sure. feel i wanted there to be at least one or two tracks on the album that just felt like home you know mm-hmm. uh, like coming back to something that you already know uh, so besides just working on like zelda arrangements and uh, hero of time and stuff uh i was an assistant for composer chad cider uh for six or seven years and I had a front row seat to all the action that happened while I was working for them. That was the period of time that I was most able to soak up the most information about orchestration. It's a lot easier for me to learn when I can see the process happening in front of me as opposed to like maybe just reading books about orchestration or just sort of not really being hands-on about it. For as much as I've learned over the last seven years that I've been orchestrating professionally, there's no end to the amount of learning and every project is a chance to learn something new. There's so many exciting new things to learn that make me excited to go back to work every day let's say i'm your student okay and i pay you and and uh you have six weeks to teach me how to orchestrate not not at a not at a you know not <laughs> the level that you're at not at a necessarily professional level but a not terrible level at least at least get me to the point of competence what would you walk me through where would you take me what would you have me do to get to that level of, of being able mm. to orchestrate 
with competence? I would say there are really three important concepts that I would cover first as your teacher. Uh, and there's some sub points for each of them too. So number one is think of your players. Many, but but not all composers tend to think about music in terms of the sounds that they want, in terms of timbre, or just thinking of instruments that they want. And that's fine. Uh, as orchestrators, our job is to figure out how to get actual real musicians to create the sounds that the composer wants. And so it's a small distinction, but writing for players is different from writing for virtual instruments. Yeah. And virtual instruments give composers unlimited freedom to write anything that they want using orchestral sounds, but that might not always lead to writing parts that are uh, practical or even possible to play. And so getting into the mindset of thinking of your players, your musicians as human beings that have to breathe and are different skill levels, like that's all very important to consider, which is my next point. Not, not main point, but it's a sub point is thinking of your player skill levels. Obviously the younger or newer musicians won't be able to play as, as much incredibly challenging music as the seasoned veterans among us. There's a very apparent skill differential uh, when it comes to sight reading challenging music by the way session players are sight reading all of the music that they perform for these video games and, and films and that's tv insane. shows and whatever that's bonkers yeah it's me. pretty impressive to see to see it happen and it's it's something to consider too just will the orchestra be able to sight read this efficiently or do i need to simplify things in order to uh, not waste time at the recording session so that's point number one think of your players Number two, understand the physical limitations of the instruments. This is pretty textbook. There's a lot of resources online that will show you what the comfortable range is of for every instrument. Every instrument has a range that sounds the best in and will sound less good or become harder to play the further it gets away from that sort of range, either on the low end or the higher end. Dynamics can also be a lot more difficult for players to control depending on their instrument and the range that they're playing in. You don't always have to write things that sound good in in the proper range but if you do want to write a very quiet oboe solo an octave above the staff you might end up with a pretty annoyed soloist and have to figure out <laughs> figure out a different solution during the session lastly voice leading aka part writing aka the same thing they teach everyone in freshman music theory class in college voice leading uh, if, if you're not familiar is how individual notes in a chord are split between different instruments and move to the next note in the harmonic progression. Practicing good voice leading generally involves following a set of rules developed by composers from the 17th and 18th centuries that are still widely accepted today. To put it simply, I guess, voices should always move the shortest distance possible from one chord tone to the next, and voices should never cross, and using parallel fifths and octaves is a no-no. It's okay to break these rules, and I... I do frequently break them, but I think it's important to understand the general concept and knowing when it's okay to break the rules, I think is is good. And this, this is important as an orchestrator to focus on because composers aren't thinking of the voice leading when they're writing. They're, they're usually working very quickly. And one of the shortcuts that composers will use is sample libraries will include like a, a chord patch. That's a virtual instrument feature where one single MIDI note might trigger an entire chord instead of just the one pitch of the MIDI note. So if their entire harmonic progression is just using pre-recorded chord voicings, uh, it might not necessarily sound the best. And it's the, the job of the orchestrator to make sure that everything sounds good and has proper voice leading. Are you kind of, do you reduce everything down to sort of four parts 
and then kind of you have this four-part harmony in your mind of where you want the voices to go and then you kind of build that out or branch that out from like that sketch and you start assigning instruments to different pitches it's pretty rare these days for composers to orchestrate from nothing besides a piano sketch most composers will sketch out their cue using virtual instruments and that serves as the basis for the orchestration. One thing to consider when orchestrating is the general rule of thumb, the rule of three, and not to have more than three different ideas going on at the same time, mostly to avoid an overcluttering of different ideas that are clashing, or if there's too much going on, your orchestration starts to lose clarity, and it'll just become sort of a muddled mess. When you say three ideas... Um, could you maybe flesh out like what is the criteria for an idea? Like what is it? What would be an example of an orchestral idea? So let's say you have the the low strings and the the low brass all playing like the staccato sort of uh, driving rhythm, bump 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 bump, like something like that, mm-hmm. um, just to give it sort of a rhythmic basis. Then you've got your melody on top. Maybe the the strings and the woodwinds are are playing the melody. And then you've got uh, an inner voice like the the horns or the trumpets or something. Probably not trumpets. Let's let's, let's say the horns are doing some sort of melodic counterpoint or counter-melody type thing. Those, those are your three things, and if you want to add more than that, you can. Just It'd be very careful about doing things that are drastically different from everything else. I think the way to praise it might be moving ideas, like ideas that have their own sort of agenda and are, are working with everything else, but if you have too much of them, it becomes hard to like see what's actually uh, happening in the music. Hey, everybody, Matt here from the future. I just wanted to let you know that that little mock-up that you just heard I composed with Spitfire Audio's free orchestral library. Yes, you heard me correctly. Free orchestral library, the BBC Symphony Orchestra. And yes, I know you can tell it's fake. You can tell it's a virtual instrument, but it's an awesome free way to get your foot in the door. Uh, If you're like me, if you're new to the orchestra and you want to start playing around with the parts. So I'll put the link to download that plugin in the description. Definitely check it out. Okay, back to the interview. And of course, like if you want to break that rule of three, there's nothing stopping you. And a lot of times we'll do that when things get really bad or you want this sort of overwhelming effect to the music. To summarize the three most important things, number one, think of your players. Number two, understand the physical limitations of instruments. And number three, practice good voice leading. Like think of the size of your ensemble too, because a lot of a very common mistake for early orchestrators is they'll um they might have a twenty piece orchestra or or ensemble and then they write something that needs to be played by at least seventy eighty people like right. you can't get twenty people to sound like eighty people so you worked on Ori in the Will of the Wisps, which is awesome. I'd love to chat a little bit about your process there. What was it like, first of all? What was your experience working on you know, such a beloved indie franchise? Uh, it was great. Gareth Coker, the composer, 
uh, wrote an incredibly gorgeous score, and I'm always impressed by the level of polish that he brings to his production. If you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend you find it on Spotify or Bandcamp. My favorite part was orchestrating the music for the prologue and epilogue sections of the game, which are very heavy on the cinematics. They, they sent me the actual video for those cinematics and I could have them open alongside the music so I could make sure that whatever I was orchestrating would make sense with what was happening in the cinematic. That's a bit of a luxury that doesn't happen very often, so it's great, refreshing, inspiring to, to have these gorgeous visuals uh, while orchestrating. As an orchestrator, you know, it's still kind of mysterious to me uh, what exactly your process is, right? So mm. you you get the piece from uh, from Gareth, and is it, is it sheet music? Is it just a, a MIDI file? Is it a WAV file? I'm curious about, like, once you actually receive the commission, you receive the material, what do you do next? So I don't get any sheet music from Gareth or or any clients. It's it's my job to make the sheet music usually, and, and so it always comes to me as a MIDI file along with audio. So I'll get audio files of each of the instrument sections. So there'll be there'll be string audio files, brass audio files, woodwinds, choir, anything like that. I bring them all into my sequencer so that I can lay it out with the MIDI and see every, see how everything lines up before I start receiving the materials we talk about the instrumentation for the orchestras uh, which studio it's being recorded in when are the dates whether it's all being recorded together as one ensemble or if it's being recorded by independent sections that sort of thing i get started on building a score template for the project based on all of those specifications while i wait for the first batch of materials to arrive the files will be delivered to me in batches i usually ask composers to send me the midi file for each cue along with audio files for each instrument or section including the the prelays that aren't going to be recorded, like the the synths or the percussion or any of the soloists that have already been recorded. It's it's also nice to have a full mix of everything along with a click track that's mostly just to help me identify and like double check and make sure that there aren't any issues that have been overlooked or anything like that. For most cues, I'll receive the files along with a briefing of what the cue is for. So like I'll get a little bit of context into the character or the area that the music's related to, along with any specific instructions like use a specific instrument for the melody or skip something that doesn't need to be done or flesh out the woodwinds more on this particular cue, that sort of thing. And once I have all that, all of those materials, I can start preparing the score file. That part involves bringing the MIDI into the notation software so that it can be orchestrated. Anyone that's taken a MIDI file from their sequencer and opened it up in Finale or Sibelius or whatever, it's a, it's a huge mess of MIDI tracks and CC data. And a lot of that's not needed for the orchestration process. And so it's a lot of work to go in and clean that all up and make it actually readable music notation for players. And that's because composers are, when they're writing music in their sequencers, they're they're not snapping the notes to the grid, right? Because it makes their virtual instruments sound very rigid or unrealistic. Right. exactly. And so yep, to yep. make them 
sound more realistic. They they might start the MIDI notes slightly before or after the actual beat. Yeah, so, so that gives the MIDI a, a sloppier appearance, but it makes it sound a lot more realistic with the virtual instruments. Notation software does its best. It tries to make sense of all of it, but it always needs to be cleaned up manually, quantizing the notes so everything starts at the right time, held for the proper duration, marking articulations like pizzicato, tremolos, mutes, all of that gets done during this phase. Any effects or MIDI events that trigger like a phrase or some sort of chord or something like that, that needs to be transcribed at this step because otherwise the orchestrator is not going to have that information to work with. The important part of this step is making sure that all of the main ideas from the composer are converted into a workable copy that can be orchestrated. Oh, and don't forget to mark the all of the tempo changes, all of the time signature changes, sort of the overall macro aspects, because if you forget to put those on the score, bad things happen during the session. I am most comfortable with Sibelius, but we do use Finale for some composers. All of that stuff that I just outlined, that's just preparing to orchestrate. Okay. That's bringing, that's bringing the notes into a workable format for orchestration. Now the actual orchestration begins, and I like to start with the strings first because they provide like a nice solid foundation. Strings are almost always playing for every cue, and so it's nice to have... Once the strings are done, that's when I'll move on to whichever section seems to be the most important in in order of importance. So it might be the woodwinds, might be the brass, maybe maybe percussion or choir or something like that. This is assuming it's a full orchestral score that we're working on. Once all the parts are written, all of the strings have their parts, all the brass, woodwinds, whatever, I'll go back through everything. I'll go back to the beginning and just work my way through and add all the slurs, articulations. Once I'm done with the articulations, I'll go back and do another pass over the whole score to do the dynamics. Do a final double check of everything, make sure I didn't miss something, make sure something didn't accidentally get moved into a different measure or something like that. If I'm copying the parts as well as orchestrating, now is the time when that step gets completed. Copying is the term used for the process of formatting the pages of sheet music for each instrumental part. The The, the term dates back to when music parts were actually written out by hand by a team of copyists. And that's where the that's how it got its name, copying. Mm. Um, there, you'd have a room full of people manually writing down every note for every part in the instrument, and then they would send it to the copy machine and print out however many copies of it. But they didn't have the luxury of Sibelius and Finale or Dorico or anything. I guess the name just stuck. So we call them copyists today, and this step is really important because... The parts are what the players actually get to see when they're performing. They, For sure. They don't see what's on the score or what anyone else is doing. So they just, they have a small window into what the music, what the music actually is. Mm. And they need to look clean. They need to be legible. There needs to be time for players to turn the page. Sometimes the chromatic spellings need to be altered for the enharmonics. Collisions need to be eliminated and everything gets double checked, just like the scores. It's a lot of work. It's very important work. A very important step is double checking everything as you go because mistakes made during music preparation get passed on into the session. And sessions, you're paying hundreds, thousands of dollars per hour of recording. And if you have to spend five minutes fixing an error on one of the parts or everyone's asking questions in the orchestra, it really, really does waste a lot of time. The last step for each cue is to export all of the scores and parts into PDF format. 
and send them back to the client so that everything can get printed and bound in time for the recording session. Then it's rinse and repeat that entire process for every cue until the whole score is done. The hardest cues that I received from Ori might have taken around eight hours to to do everything I just described. Conversely, some of the cues may have only taken me a half hour to do from start to finish just because it was maybe just strings or it was very short or very simple. Do you know as soon as you get a cue, you're like, oh boy, this one's going to be a doozy? Definitely, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when you look at the terms like music preparation, because on some, some, some tunes you're like, yeah, I was the music preparer. And then other tunes, you're like, I was the arranger. And then another, you said, I was the orchestrator. So so between those three terms, what would you say, you know, what are, what are some of the differences between those, those three terms? Music preparation is essentially a, a catch-all term that is used to describe the overall process that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of technical and administrative organizational work that's tucked in between a lot of these duties. But we don't have fancy, dedicated titles to give the assistants or other people who who work on those jobs. You have the librarians and their teams that take care of all the printing and binding of the scores and parts. They would also be considered music preparation, along with the score preparation, which is cleaning up and quantizing the MIDI and bringing it into, bringing it into the notation software. And so in terms of uh, arrangement versus orchestration, like how would you mm. differentiate those two? So these roles, composer, arranger, orchestrator, they're a bit trickier to find in a strict sense because there's actually quite a bit of overlap between them. Uh, I think to put it in the most simple terms, composers write the themes, arrangers utilize and modify the themes, and orchestrators bring the themes to life in the literal sense of creating the sheet music. It's going to depend on the exact situation, but uh, like some composers might do all of the above and not need to hire an orchestrator. Sometimes orchestrators are asked to write or arrange parts that haven't been written, so they have to have a little bit of a, a composer streak in them. Arrangers usually get credited as additional music or something along those lines. Uh, in some cases, they don't get any credit at all, and we just call that ghostwriting. Uh, I loved your use of the the modern drum set percussion in the credits theme of Darksiders. What are some other doublings or orchestral arrangement choices that you've made uh, that have been that kind of go outside the box of like traditional mm. orchestration? Well, one of my favorite types of music to work on is music that uses randomness or creative interpretation on the part of the performer mm. to create something that is difficult to predict the sound of when, when it's being written. Uh, these are the sort of things that would be impossible to reproduce in the exact same way ever again. And for me, those are the tracks that I always find the most interesting when I go back and listen to listen to them after a few years. And we did a bunch of that sort of thing on Darksiders where the, the notes might not be specifically written out and the, the performers might get to choose how they want to interpret something and uh, perform it, use a little bit of their professional creativity to add something of their own to the music rather than the orchestrator or the composer dictates everything exactly. And is that called aleatoric music? You could you could use that term. I, I, I'm not quite sure on the definitions of all of it. Maybe maybe like well what did what did like John Cage and stuff call it? 
I don't remember. I don't know. I don't remember. All I remember is I remember I had a I had an interview on this podcast with Gary Scheiman, and I was talking to him, mm. and he talked about how a lot of times on the Bioshock series, because he wanted to create this very unsettling, unsure kind of uh, um, uh, really mysterious atmosphere, he would do tons of stuff like that, where he would just mm-hmm. give instructions. He he just tell the string player, "Hey, play any note in this range, or you know, go from yeah. the 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 bottom note of." this range to the top note of this range at whatever speed you want, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Or, you know, he would do various uh, things of that sort. So I think that's really cool. Cause it kind of like I combines love doing that stuff. It combines the sort of, uh, the sort of improvisation of other, of other musical uh, heritages and, and styles like jazz. And it brings it into, to typically what is a more rigid um, a musical style, like, like uh, orchestral orchestral music. So I think that's really cool. Hey, bring that in. Yeah, it, it just adds another layer of collaboration to the process. Like you have the composer, then you have the orchestrator, then you have the performer. And like it, it's sort of everyone's collaborating to create something that can never be created again. So I'm really interested in the work habits and schedules of creative people, uh, because especially freelancers because and, and people who kind of work for themselves because, you know, we have to be disciplined and things of that nature. So I'm curious uh, for you, what is a day in the life of Eric? look like i find that my most creative productive hours are usually in the morning and in the evening and afternoons i usually try to do more of the technical or administrative sort of things my mind seems to have an easier time handling in the afternoon Mm. um i don't know if it just there's more distractions or there's more uh maybe it's really nice out and i just want to go for a walk or something rather than be inside writing music uh, I do try to take advantage of the times that I'm feeling the most energized creatively, and that tends to be in the evening or in the morning. Uh, once I hit that zone, like it, the time just flies by, and next thing I know, it's it's after midnight, and I need to start getting ready for bed and do right. the same thing the next day. Okay, cool, man. So here is the lightning round. So in the lightning round, <laughs> I'm going to ask you just real quick questions. And just tell me the first thing that pops in your head. All right. Okay. So here we go. Lightning round. Question number one. What would be your desert album? Uh, excuse me. What would be your desert island album? Not video game music. One album to take to a desert island. Not video games. What do you think? Uh, I would say above and beyond acoustic album number two. I have never heard of that. Above and beyond oh. acoustic album number. And that's not video games. No, so Above and Beyond is actually a trance group, and they release every few years, they'll do an acoustic album of their trance music Whoa. that's been rearranged into more of a sort of orchestral-style pop-ish album thing. And uh, yeah, I, they, they, their third album is coming out this year, um, and I'm, I'm going to check that out. Forward to that. Yeah. I was Googling that right now, right on. What is something right now that is inspiring you? I mean, the the first thing that comes to mind is the the global pandemic that's going on right now. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's such an impactful event, I think, in the world. The, I can't think of anything that's had a bigger impact on a global scale than than this virus, and it's it's fuel. It, it becomes fuel for the creative energy that I think a lot of artists myself included have when they start producing their art yeah it's really interesting i've i've noticed just with this pandemic it seems to bring out 
uh, sometimes the worst, but a lot of times it brings out the best in people in being creative in terms of not just producing their art like we're talking about, but also just coming up with creative solutions to help humans, to help other humans, you know, and, and mm-hmm. proactively uh, uh, help human flourishing. So on a totally different note, <laughs> switching gears, I want to go back to the desert island, but I want to ask you, what is your, what would be your desert island video game score or your video game uh, soundtrack that you'd take to the desert island? I would take the Kid Icarus Uprising original soundtrack. Dude, that that soundtrack is so good. I love I, I that. I wish more people would listen to it. It's got so much variety. It's got a ton of music. There's so many different composers. It's got everything from rock, weird electronic stuff, orchestral. Uh, it's got something for everybody, and the, the themes are great. Um, it's very cinematic but just because of the way the game plays. Yeah, it's it's my favorite game soundtrack. In one word, what was it like touring with Evanescence? Unexpected. <laughs> I like that. Let's just leave, let's just leave that there. Let's <laughs> yeah. just let the mystery. Let's just let's just go. That's that's yeah. good. What is something that you are looking forward to? It could be in your music career, in your life in general. So I recently just started a new position with Materia Collective. Uh, I'm now a member of that team, and nice. I'm looking forward to all of the amazing things that we're going to be working on. That's awesome. Congrats, man. Thanks. If you weren't doing what you're doing now in the music world, like you were working in a completely separate industry. You weren't working in music. What do you think you'd be doing? Well, when I was growing up, like I was always very interested in, in the sciences. Uh, also like just astronomy, like sort of just, I'd get my telescope out and I'd look at the stars and the, the planets and stuff. I think I would narrow it down to meteorology or some sort of aerospace engineering type sort of scientific field. I, I think those are very interesting. And if I hadn't gone into music, I probably would have considered looking into those things. What games are you currently playing? Animal Crossing, New Horizons. Oh man, I haven't gotten it Just got it. (laughs) I have not gotten it yet and I'm holding off because I know it's going to consume my life. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's pretty great. It's, it's a nice change of pace compared to what I normally play. I'm also, I'm I'm a glutton for Overwatch, which I've been playing for the last four years. Uh, Nice. I hit Grandmaster rank as as Lucio and played against pros. Wow. Um, Well done. It's a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, we, I usually play with my friends at least a few times a week. Okay. So let's say we finish this interview and you walk outside, you buy a lottery ticket and it's a $10 million winning lottery ticket. What's the first thing you do? I'll pay off my debt. There you I've, go. I've got some student loans. I, I didn't graduate from college, but I I did take two years, so I got off easy. Pay off those. I'd probably pay off my parents' lo- or par- parents' debt if they you know if they need help or whatever. I mean, I've got the I've got ten million bucks, right? Who else am I going to spend it on besides my family? That's right. Um, would you like buy? Would you like buy? Uh, you know your own. You could probably like buy a symphony. <laughs> I, I'm trying to think of all the things you could do in terms of orchestration with ten million dollars. Well, if we want to, if we want to use it to, to to fund like a studio, I would totally do that. I would I'd build like a an entire like facility dedicated to music production, audio production, sound effects, sound design, everything like that. Have it all under one roof. Give it a nice uh, recording room, scoring stage. 
lots of equipment. I mean, 10 million bucks would be a good start for all that, I think. So. Yeah, that, that would be good. <laughs> Very important question, crucial, is uh, who would win in a fight, Ganondorf or Darth Vader? Mm, Ganondorf, for sure. I mean... Whoa, okay. Please yeah. explain your work. Explain because your reasoning. I'm, I'm a bigger Zelda fan than I'm a Star Wars fan, so I've got to go with Ganondorf. <laughs> so you think the power of your fandom would fuel him to destroy Precisely. Darth Vader? Okay, good, good, good. That's a that, that's good. And for the, <laughs> for the record, I think logistically, Ganondorf probably could be I mean, if Darth he's got Vader. the Triforce, I mean... Yeah, it, it depends. Does he have all three him? pieces? Does he have all three pieces of the Triforce? Because if I mean, so, it's a done if, deal. If, if he has, even if he has one, like... If he has the force and Darth Vader has the force, that sort of cancels each other out. But oh, if Ganondorf true. even has the the two force or the triforce, you know, right? It, it sort He's, of skews the odds more into Ganondorf's favor. I think so. That's right. That's right. He's got the advantage there. Well, man, thank you so much uh, for taking the time out to chat here today. Where can people go to learn more about you and hear your music? Well, I do like to go on Twitter a lot, even though I don't post a lot. I'm lurking and I'm reading and I'm, I like to keep tabs on what other people are doing. So you can follow me on Twitter. Um, you can check me out on Spotify, on Bandcamp. Um, where else? My, I'll, put, I'll put all your links. I'll put all <laughs> cool, your yeah. links. Yeah, your website, everything. I'll put all your links in the description. Well, thanks so much, man. Appreciate you taking the time out. I think the the insights that you've offered on orchestration have been just pure gold. So I, I can't wait to to dive back into that, and I'm sure it's going to be helpful for everyone listening. Yeah, thanks for having me. You got it, man. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Composer Code. I really hope it was helpful or at least entertaining. I have over 20 other in-depth interviews with game composers you can listen to right now for free at ComposerCode.com. So definitely check those out. There you'll also find some helpful articles and resources and videos and blog posts all about making music for games. If you want to help offset some of the hosting costs of keeping Composer Code online, consider throwing me a buck or two at patreon.com slash composer code. I would very much appreciate it. Doing so also helps me justify putting in more time to make the show the best it can be. So links for everything I've mentioned in this episode will be in the description. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.